no better lot. The Surreal Noir by Dime Store Films. Part 4. In the parlor of a southern gothic mansion, Guy has a lead for the first time. An audience with the mister. Here he witnesses something he never expected to see in this cruel little town. Compassion. Taking on a role that's more mother than crime boss, the mister comforts the badly wounded servant that Guy returned to her. The lost lamb kneels at the foot of her wheelchair, cowering with his head in her lap. The mister addresses one of her other worker bees. Jeffrey, tend to his wounds. And then to her cowering pet. We're going to ease some of your pain, sweetie. One of the other servants brings a lit match to the cut-up creature at her feet. He snorts the flame and a visible relief washes over him. He shows his gratitude by kissing the mister's hand and is swept out of the room to recover elsewhere. Guy silently absorbs all this with restrained confusion. It appears that Jeffrey is the name given to every one of her little deviants, the uniformity continuing past the physical and down to the most basic element of identity. His eyes wander over the mister. He notices her fingers are fused together on one hand, forming a fleshy claw. She catches his gaze and turns her attention to him, finally acknowledging his presence. Found one of your boys in town. He was wandering around. You can spare me the show and take off the costume, honey. I know who you are. Yeah? And who's that? Well, let's see. You told Jeffrey at the door you're from town, which you're not. Another one of her Jeffreys enters with her midday meal. An ornately patterned bowl full of raw meat, skin and all. He sets it on her desk, and she begins to dig in, using her fleshy scoop of a hand as her only utensil. She savors the meal throughout their conversation, happy to punctuate her prose with the licking of lips. Thank you, Jeffrey. You've been telling people from town, y'all. What was it? Yeah, looking for work. Just passing through. Which you're not. You're not. What you are is an errand boy. And not a very effective one at that. How am I doing so far? A smile creeps across the mister's face as she continues. She loves how right she can be. I'm not holding it against you. I can appreciate the importance of anonymity in your line of work. Have a seat, dear. Make yourself comfortable. No need to have your claws out. Jaffer, a seat for our guest, please. If it's all the same to you, standing's just fine. Suit yourself. Jeffrey! The mister makes a sweeping motion with her hand, and a servant hurriedly removes the chair. Another Jeffrey licks the mister's slimy, blood-soaked claw clean as she continues. Now let's talk. We both want the same thing, you and I. Yeah, I'm not so sure about that. Well, I'm sure enough for the both of us. Your employer is right. People are escaping this place, and you're here to sweep in, shake up some dust, and sleep up. Not just a pretty face. What I'm not so sure about is why you want that, too. You've been here how long? Two days. That's about right. So you ain't seen nothing yet. Still, long enough to get in plenty of trouble. Make some enemies, but hell, I like that. You're mischievous. Looks good on you. (laughs) 
and you haven't even seen me in my ball gown. The mister smiles coyly. Since I like you so much, I'd like to pull your head out of the sand. So I'm going to do some talking, you're going to do some listening, and Jeffrey here is going to rub my feet. Sounds like a swell time. That town out there, that's as good as it gets. And it's trash. If there was an opportunity to improve things around here, it's long gone. There's no reformation. There's only decay. The cornfield is proof of that. No matter if you try to go over it, under it, it's there to cause pain. You're welcome to your crawling out of it. And if you're foolish enough, you'll crawl back into it. This place wasn't made to be comfortable. It's a consequence. See, even if it ain't made to be comfortable, people still find a way to get through the day. For Jeffrey, it's my love. And I can't bear to see those I love suffer. So I created the flame and saw that it was good. It eases the pain and helps them see the bright side of things. For those unwashed pinheads in town, hell, they're just finding a different escape. I appreciate the symmetry of all this, but let's have something I can use if you want to use me. Now, I know people are getting out. What I need is a where, and I need a how. Yes, yes, I know. Knowledge is power, but power itself trumps all. Whether I like to admit it or not, you have that. I have my family here, but unfortunately... She pauses and looks around the room at her pitiful harem. Jeffrey... Yes. All Jeffreys cover their ears in unison. They're not the brightest bunch. They have a feeling. They're just some things that if you want them done right, you gotta do them yourself. And that, that isn't an option anymore. But you have the means. Yeah. Yeah, I got the means. I got a motive too. Far as I can tell though, you got neither. And I don't think anyone ended up here by being overly generous, so... What do you get out of this? Favor. I'm a big old fish in a small pond. And you may be a guppy, but you got carried over here in the belly of the whale. That's a powerful acquaintance. So here's what I get out of this. I get out of this. When your job is done here and you leave this little latrine on the prairie, you take me with you. Make sure your boss knows how instrumental I was in the success of this operation. I'm sure he'll wave his magic wand or whatever he does and book me a seat right next to yours. How do I know you're not just throwing dust in my eyes, hmm? Sending me on some fool's errand to buy time and then you just sneak on out while I'm chasing my tail. You don't. But would I still be here if I knew the way home? You are my way home. Jeffrey here will accompany you and report back to me to protect my interests. Mm -mm. The last thing I need is to take care of your little puppy. He won't shit in the house if that's what you're worried about. He's not my lab dog. He's my eyes. Guy turns to look at the Jeffrey she's offering up. A slender, skittish Jeffrey who keeps his face covered with both hands in a peekaboo pose. Not the obvious choice, but uh, I do appreciate the irony. He sees what I need him to see. And that's all that matters. Besides, something tells me you can use all the help you can get. Or at least an extra set of hands. Now run along. You're burning daylight. Guy takes a moment to stare at her, trying his best to pretend like he has some control over the situation. But it's clear to both parties he doesn't. As he moves to the exit, the mister's voice stops him in his tracks. Oh dear, don't get any cute ideas now. If you don't come back to me with open arms, you'll go back to them with no arms. 
They lock eyes in a silent tug of war, and everything is still for the moment. Misunderstanding the lapse in action, Jeffrey sweeps in to take away the mister's feeding bowl. He spills some of its disgusting contents onto her desk, and she snaps at him quicker than a cobra strike, smashing his head bloody with one of her arm crutches. Clean this mess up, Jeffrey! And show him to the door. Pitiful. The brash brutality sends a chill down Guy's spine as his stomach struggles to unknot itself. Like a light switch, the mister is suddenly tender again. She produces another match and offers the flame gently to the bleeding Jeffrey, whispering dotingly into his ear. Guy walks along, leaving the mister's mansion shrinking in the distance as his guide Jeffrey circles him in a stumbling orbit. When Jeffrey talks, he opens his hands like a barn door to let his words burst out and then closes them, shutting out the world once more. So what do I call you? Well, I ain't calling you Jeffrey, because I ain't her. Great. Well, Bob it is. So, Bob, where are we headed? The newly christened Bob says nothing. Man, you fit in here, you know that? They walk along, nothing but the wind between them. Guy tries a different approach to crack this nut. Hey, what's with the hands? Sometimes it's too much. Which part? The beatings or the, uh, sideshow on wheels? No, not mister. Mister takes care of us. Mister loves us. Yeah? What about that guy back there? Looks like she gave his face the old Humpty Dumpty treatment. Bob peeks an eye out from in between his fingers. He looks confused. You know, the whooping he took? That's how you learn. That's how I, 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 I learn it. Yeah, well, she did a dynamite job by breaking you. Got the blinders up like a show pony. This keeps the, the light out. It hurts. It hurts my eyes. What? That light bulb up there? Yeah, it packs a punch. Don't stare at it. It's bad for your brain. And at this point, I'd say every bit counts. No. The, the colors, the bloom, I, I, I can see all the cracks, it's too much. Guy looks around the landscape for something he's missing. Nothing but drab browns and tans. Yeah, he sure pants with quite the palette, huh? It makes me feel so small. Yeah, well, that's something we can agree on. Are we friends now? <laughs> Well, let's not go throwing around words like that. Well, I'm not telling you when my, my birthday is, then. Shoot. Now I'm not going to know what to get you. Guy's Hilltop Base Camp comes into view. A quick stop there for supplies might do him some good. The closer he gets, the more obvious it becomes. His camp has been raided. His canteen is gone. His radio has been tossed aside by an ignorant ransacker. Whoever's behind this was either blind to its value or overwhelmed by the sight of clean water, a rare, almost sacred commodity in this barren world. Guy takes a moment to assess the damage, trying to sniff out clues and figure out exactly how set back he is. His eyes shift to his new sidekick, Bob, standing nearby looking confused. Guy's not sure whether or not bringing him here was a good idea. 
It bobs the mister's eyes, then Guy just led her right to an eyeful. At the chapel, the preacher addresses the congregation, his bullhorn carrying the word to the back row and beyond. His arms shoot to the sky triumphantly with Guy's canteen in hand. The crowd of acolytes and junkies stare at the preacher with stars in their eyes. They litter a sermon with oohs, ahs, and amens. No, no, my brothers and sisters, your eyes do not deceive you. Hoisted above my head is a miracle, something we all gave up on a long time ago. Hope, cleansing. Did I not speak of such purity coming to wash us clean all but a night ago? So I ask you, have I not proven to be the conduit? If you can't answer that with a loud amen, then let me be so bold as to say, Amen! Does this not prove that all our efforts are bearing fruit and that we are indeed on the righteous path to salvation, to freedom? We can turn our backs on this prison. The devil himself sculpted this place and he tossed us in like the playthings of a spoiled child. So, brothers and sisters, let me take the first sip And if I'm wrong, may my insides boil and burst, and may you seek salvation elsewhere. In the bent light of a flame, in the mirages of merriment, in excess and desire. The entire congregation sits in silent awe. With a performer's flourish, the preacher removes his mouthpiece and touches his lips to the canteen. He drops to his knees and the crowd gasps and screams. As their shock reaches its crescendo, the preacher shoots to his feet, and the room erupts into applause and amens and praisings. The crowd is right where he wants him, full to the top with his spirit. The preacher welcomes his congregation forward. He gives sips of the water to some, and for others, empties a meager amount into their hands so they may wash even the smallest patch of skin. Rejoice and be glad. Back at the base camp, dusk settles into the sky and Guy sits in quiet frustration trying to come up with his next move. There's a calm desperation to the quickness of his moves as he fidgets with the radio. He desperately scans the frequencies for a life preserver. Come back in. Come back in. Hello? My camp's been tossed. I don't know how much they know. I'm running out of options. Somebody? Hello? Hello? Come back in. No response. Someone's asleep at the wheel or leaving them to the sharks. The steady static of the radio mixes with the distant moans of the cornfield. Guy looks towards those moans, displeased with their interference. He grabs the radio and moves further away from the sound to reduce its noise pollution. He twists the dial again, still unable to concentrate through the cornfield's constant droning. Guy stares angrily at the field at his left, muttering as he covers one ear to focus the other solely on the radio speaker. This is no hell. The cacophony of screams blares just as loud from the distance on the right. Guy sets the radio down and heads toward the source of these new moans. 
Bob tagging along silently. They walk for a bit, strung along by the slowly growing wails of pain. Soon the sound they've been chasing rises to deafening heights. If Guy had a map, he'd be standing on the X. That X is marked by a large boulder jutting up from the ground. Whatever's been making the sound is just beyond it. But the cries are so abysmal, he's in no hurry to see what's what. Stopping now ain't a luxury he can afford. The mister's gaze is on it, albeit through the covered eyes of a mentally absent little worm. Guy took the role, and he's going to have to play it, so he ignores every instinct and warning sign, and presses past the forbidding rock. Just on the other side, he finds a group of decaying bodies, buried up to their bellies in the sand. Even by the standards of this town, this is a pretty cruel way to engineer a curtain of white noise. What Guy's discovered is an auditory smokescreen. Whoever buried these tortured souls was trying to cover up whatever was happening just beyond the boulder. Bad deeds camouflaged by worse ones. Bob peeks an eye out from between his fingers. They drunk out from the, the corn. Too full of the rot to be from anywhere else. Guy's eyes, grateful to be pulled away from the sight of torn, infected flesh, move to the mouth of the cave. From inside, the faintest light glows, then disappears deeper. Guy steps closer to the entrance and stares into the darkness. He walks back to the half-buried moaners and crouches down, eye to eye with one of them. Guy's pupils bob between disgust and pity. He slowly reaches forward and tears a long strip of fabric from one of their tattered shirts. Grabbing a dead tree limb from the ground, he wraps the shirt around the end and questions Bob. You been inside? Bob shakes his head. Nope. Empty your pockets. Bob obliges and turns his pockets out. He drops a matchbook into Guy's hand. Exactly what he was looking for. The finishing touch to a low-rent torch. Guy flips the book open to reveal... Nothing. Shit. He looks back into the cave, then to Bob, whose eyes go back to their natural habitat, behind his hands. Guy considers this. Hey, you like the dark, don't you, pal? Guy gestures to the permanent midnight of the cave. No bright blossoms in there. Bob cracks his barn doors and stares confused. Let's go. Bob marches into the cave with Guy following closely behind, a hand on his shoulder. He's got himself his own seeing-eye dog. After the bombastic sermon and the last of his revelers leave, the preacher retires to a small private room in the back of the chapel. He approaches his desk, and with the tenderness of a new father, he picks up Guy's canteen. The preacher closes his eyes, whispers to an invisible observer in a dead language, tries to squeeze any remaining drops of water from the vessel. When nothing more than air flows out, he throws it aside in a wild fit. He brings his hands to his face and weeps. The preacher stumbles to his knees and begins to pray, to beg. What more must I do? I'm trying to liberate them from their addictions. I know this is the way because you have chosen a happy few. You have delivered some out of this place and away from the agony. But if I am their shepherd, who will lead me? When will you lead me? 
I know I've sinned. I know I've failed, and that is why I'm here. Here with the temptress you sent to test me in life all those years ago. Sent to break me. And I broke. I'm not asking you to put me back together. I'm asking you to test me again. I'm asking you... I'm asking for the chance to prove myself to you. Once more, he weeps. <laughs> Echoes rise and fall surrounding Bob and Guy in the cave. Bob is now the eyes of the operation. He walks slowly further into the cave as the light from the night sky retreats behind them. Bob peeks an eye past his fingers. The pitch black is a rare comfort. He drops his hands and begins to giggle. This echoes, which surrounds them, and becomes a lunatic chorus. Hey, inside voice. But I can see! Yeah, that's the idea. Keep moving. Guy marches Bob forward until they reach a fork in the road. I guess I keep moving. Which way? Four. There's three forwards. Okay. Tell me what you see. Are there any... Are there any footprints, signs of a worn path? N no. Not, not sure. Yes! Okay, okay, good. Now what does that look like? F foot bottoms. In which way do they lead? That way! But don't point. Walk. Bob continues the seeing eye dog routine. Guy holds an arm out, groping the walls, trying his best to put some faith in his shepherd, but still looking for something to orient him. Progress halts once more. Another set of diverging paths. Four more mouths. And we look for... Foot bottoms! Yeah. Shh. Yes. No. No what? No foot bottoms. None? Nope. Let's, let's go back. No, hold, hold, on, hold on. Let me think. My eyes. I, I can't anymore. My head hurts. Hey, shut up. Shut up. I need you to be quiet. They stand in silence for a moment while Guy focuses his remaining senses. A faint echo reverberates off the cave walls. The smallest metallic clang. Right there. Right there, you hear that? Head. Heart. This way. Guy steers Bob into cave number two. He's now a bit harder to wrangle as he comes down from his last high. Crossing into another vast opening, Guy loses his footing and trips forward. Bob, with surprisingly fast reflexes for someone struggling to sober up, catches Guy and begins to lead him, stepping backwards as he guides Guy by the arm. Pains of withdrawal, hot on his heels, Bob grasps at his head, his sight becoming cloudier, his footing becoming unsteady. Bob lets out a yell as the ground disappears under him. He tumbles backwards, a gaping mouth of earth swallows him whole. It's impossible for Guy to tell how deep the hole goes based on the giant pile of displaced dirt next to it. It's man-made. Guy calls into the abyss. Bob! Bob! Jeffrey! He's lost in the void. Guy groups around the edge of the hole, making sure he's in a safe enough area to move. He carefully doubles back the way they just came, now completely blind and without a guide. His cool demeanor breaks, and panic peeks through the cracks. Guy gets as far as the forking path before the air feels suddenly heavier. Guy runs his hands along the ground, crushing the dirt in his fists. 
He tries to calm himself. Short, deep breaths, unclenched fists. With his palm flat, the dirt scuttles across it and floats off to the ground. He can use this. Guy regains his focus. Holding the dirt in his hand, he begins to use it like a compass, trying to determine the origin of the breeze. He extends his flattened palm to cave number one, then number two, then number three. Bingo. Strengthened by a dim hope, Guy cautiously moves towards the wind, a drowning man swimming to a distant shore. The metallic clang he heard earlier begins to surface again, now louder, repeating. Further and further he goes, until a faint light makes its presence known. At first, merely a flicker in the distance. Guy finally comes to the end of the road. The tunnel dead ends into a man-made cavern, divided from the rest of the cave system by a raggedy canvas curtain, glowing gold and red from a fire just beyond it. Guy parts the curtain and enters, not sure what'll be waiting ahead of him, but knowing sure as hell it'll beat what's waiting behind. No Better Lot is an original production of Dime Store Films. Written and directed by Christian Gradelli and Hunter Norris. Narrated by Stan Adams. Performed by Mike Schminke, Brittany Baker, John Mossman, Travis Delgado, Jim Salturos, Christopher Meister, Brian Noonan, Matt Young, Adria Don, Marshall Crawford, Anthony Dobrowalski, and Sam Beck. Original score composed by Abby Rajashaker. Engineered by Brian Bachman. Dialogue and narration engineered by Nick Sherman. Recorded at Decade Music Studio in Chicago. Sound design, mix, and additional music by Matt Wenzel. Script supervision by Jake Weissman. Casting by Sarah Clark. You can find us on the internet at NoBetterLot.com and DimeStoreFilms.com and on social media at DimeStoreFilms. Films.